not weathered this particularly well in our country. It's a lot of division. Lines are being drawn in new and unfamiliar places. People that we uh, used to listen to, maybe a pastor we used to listen to, an author we used to listen to. Now we're not so sure about them anymore. Uh, scandals have come into different denominations, and, and how those scandals have been handled have been questionable. There, there's so much going on in our country and in, in the church, and I think a lot of people are just deciding that we're not going to do it anymore. This, 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 is, this is just too confusing, too messy, too disillusioning, and, and this is not for me. My prayer as your pastor is that every single member of this church will persevere in trusting Jesus Christ until the last day of your life. And that is my prayer, is that every, everyone who professes Christ will continue to profess Christ and follow Christ until the end. That, that we won't see these types of deconversion stories happening here. My prayer is that you'll be stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you received, that you would continue in the faith to the end. But if that is going to happen, if you are going to persevere in faith to the end, then you must learn what to do when you doubt. You must learn what to do when you doubt. Many true believers will experience doubt about their faith. And when you do experience doubt, if you are going to persevere through that season, you must learn to doubt well. You must learn to doubt well. And so this morning we are in Matthew chapter 11, continuing our series through Matthew about following Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the scriptures. And this story is a surprising one because we see maybe the person who had the most knowledge about Jesus at this time, doubting Jesus. Let's look at the passage together. Matthew 11, we're going to go all the way through 19 today. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. 
For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, if that passage is not totally crystal clear to you at this moment, that's okay. just want you to know that. It's okay. There are really three parts to this passage. We're just going to take it one by one. First, we see John's doubts. We'll, we'll pick up in verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Okay, so we're talking about John the Baptist here, and we need to remember a little bit about John the Baptist from earlier in the book. Way back in chapter 3 is when John the Baptist was introduced to us, and you can turn back to chapter 3 with me. John the Baptist came on the scene before Christ, and he uh, was preparing the way for Christ. As, uh, Matthew tells us that John was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. You see in chapter 3, verse 3, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John, John was the one, John was this voice in the wilderness that was preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And here was John's message. In verse 2 we see it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message to Israel was God's kingdom is coming. God's salvation is coming. The day of the Lord is coming and you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sins now before it comes. Why? Well, look down at verse 12 of chapter 3. He's speaking of the Messiah and he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So this was John's message. John's message was, the kingdom is coming, the Messiah is coming, his winnowing fork is in his hand, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, that's an image for separating God's people from the wicked, he's going to save God's people, but he is going to judge the wicked, he's going to judge those who have not repented, he, he is going to bring God's kingdom in through blessing and judgment, and you need to repent before he comes. That was John's message to the people. It was an urgent message. The Messiah is coming. Salvation and judgment are coming. The next thing we see is Jesus comes to John, surprisingly and confusingly, wants to be baptized by John. And John assents to his request. When that happens, the Father speaks his voice of approval to the Son. The Spirit descends on Jesus all of this authenticating John's message, this is the one, this is the Messiah. And then the next thing that we see happen with John is in chapter 4, verse 12, where John is arrested. We hear about the details later in Matthew. John was, uh, John, John was speaking against King Herod's wickedness, and he was arrested and put in jail. And it's actually at this point when John was arrested that Jesus began his ministry. So, so we need to understand something, that John has been in prison for the entirety of Jesus' public ministry. He, he, he wasn't around to see any of it. He wasn't there at the Sermon on the Mount. He, he's not been an eyewitness to the miracles. He's been in prison this whole time. And that leads us to our text this morning in Matthew 11, where John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ and sent word by his disciples to Jesus 
and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So from prison, John hears about what Jesus is doing. He hears about the miracles. He hears about the exorcisms. Probably hears about his teaching. And he hears all this, and, and he begins to doubt upon hearing all this. Is he the one? Now, that might seem confusing to us from where we sit today because we read all this today and say, of course it means he's the one. Right? But, but John had a very different perspective than we do. You see, John, as we just saw, was anticipating the Messiah to come, judge the wicked, and establish God's kingdom. That's what John thought was going to happen. And yet now John is in prison under wicked King Herod. The Romans are still ruling over Israel. They're still corrupt religious leaders leading God's people. John's suffering in prison, and he hears Jesus doing these things, these miracles, but, but there's no judgment happening. The wicked are continuing in their way. The kingdom was supposed to come. The kingdom was supposed to arrive, and John's in prison. Jesus was not doing what John had preached and what John had anticipated, and John was suffering because of it, and that's why he was doubting. His beliefs about Jesus were not correlating with his experience of Jesus. And this is often the very same thing that makes us doubt, too. We are prone to doubt when our beliefs and our experiences don't line up. And this is even more true when we throw suffering into the mix. We believe that God is a good father who loves us better than any earthly father could ever love us, but then we experience immense suffering. And we can't help but wonder, does God really love me? Is God even really in control? Is there even a God? We believe that the gospel is powerful to save. It's this right here on the wall. It's the power of God to save but then we experience maybe years of seemingly fruitless evangelism, begin to doubt, does this gospel really save? Is this gospel really true? We believe that Jesus will satisfy our hearts and fill our lives with joy, but then we experience unshakable depression or anxiety, and it makes us question, is joy in Jesus really possible? Is Jesus really there at all? You see, when our beliefs don't correlate with our experiences, doubt often follows. But here's where we need to see what John did with his doubts and follow his example. He brought his doubts to Jesus. You see, John could have kept his questions to himself. I mean, I imagine it would be somewhat embarrassing for John to admit to his disciples I'm beginning to have second thoughts about Jesus. I mean, if it was today, he, he probably would have posted all over his, his Facebook and Twitter, whatever else, your Insta chat, whatever else is out there, right? And, and said, Jesus is the Messiah. And then it'd be a little embarrassing to say, actually, I think I was wrong about that. I'm not so sure. He could have kept those doubts to himself. He could have just kept them hidden. He could have tried to suppress them and, and not 
think about them, but instead John sent his disciples to Jesus with his question. And it's really a stunning question when you think about who's asking it. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I mean, this is, this is the one, I'm sure, he heard, I'm sure he heard the story when he was a baby, and his Aunt Mary came to visit his mother. John leaped in the womb, in the presence of baby Jesus in his mother's womb. I'm sure John knew that story. This is the one who saw the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. This, I, mean, I mean, and now he's so unsure. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Christ? Or is someone else going to bring in the kingdom of God? Have I been confused this whole time, Jesus? This teaches us the reality of doubt, but it also teaches us that when we doubt, we need to bring our doubts to Jesus. If you're going to persevere in your faith, then when you doubt, bring your doubts to Jesus. Ask Jesus your questions. Don't suppress them. Don't hide them. Don't ignore them. Make them known. And when you do, here is what you will find. A compassionate Savior who will tend to and build up your fragile faith. That is what you'll find in Jesus when you come with your doubts. He will not cast you out for doubting. He will not say, how could you not believe in me? No, he will be compassionate to you. And he will strengthen you to keep believing in him. And we know that because that's exactly how Jesus responded to John. The second part of this text is Jesus' answer. And this makes up the majority of the text from verse 4 all the way down through 15. We'll start with his, the specific answer he gave to John in verses 4 through 6. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor of good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Well, we should immediately observe something odd in Jesus' answer to John here. Because John has heard about the deeds of Jesus, and that's making him doubt. And Jesus says, go tell John about my deeds. Well, John's already heard about the deeds, right? I mean, that, that's, none of this is news to John. He's been hearing about these things. So why is Jesus saying this? Well, there's more going on here than meets the eye. You see, Jesus is telling John his deeds, but he's using language that comes straight from the book of Isaiah. And, you know, we're familiar with certain books more than others. I think John was very familiar with Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah was the one that prophesied about John, right? This was, I mean, this was John's book, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So, so Jesus is quoting from Isaiah to John, and, and he's specifically quoting from a few different passages. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Listen to this. Here's what Isaiah 35 says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Well, that's what Jesus is saying is happening, right? Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Well, Jesus just said the poor have good news preached to them. He's, he's using this Isaiah language to, to tell John what he's doing. But here's the thing. Jesus is also leaving out parts of these passages. 
Jesus didn't quote Isaiah 35, 4, which says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, and he will come and save you. Jesus didn't quote Isaiah 61, 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. See, he left those verses out. As John read those passages, John saw them as one thing, right? God's going to come, he's going to save his people, he's going to bless his people, and he's going to judge the wicked, and it's all going to happen at once. And then Jesus quotes these verses, and he only quotes the blessing part. He only quotes the part of, of the miracles and the salvation, the good news. Here's Jesus' message to John. Here's what he's saying to John. John, I am the Christ. I am the Christ, but the kingdom is not coming like you expected it to. Salvation appears before judgment appears. Salvation appears before judgment appears. And this was a complete category shift for John. And so Jesus encourages John, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Another translation says, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away because of me. John, you began well. Keep going. Keep, keep, keep believing in me. You don't understand all of this. It's different than you thought it was. But keep believing in me. I am the Christ. Don't fall away. Continue in the conviction that you began with. That's the message that Jesus sends to John. Now, as we move into the next part of the passage, we realize that this conversation between Jesus and John's disciples has not been taking place in private. Right? Imagine this is just like a, a, a conversation in a house or something. But no, there's a crowd listening to all of this. There's a crowd hearing John's disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, John isn't sure you're the Messiah anymore. And they're hearing Jesus' response. And you can imagine that this would have caused quite a stir in Jesus' day, right? John the Baptist isn't sure about Jesus anymore? What, is, what did Jesus mean by what he just said about Isaiah? And Jesus, Jesus knows this. He knows that the crowds are being brought into this conversation. And so in the next part of the passage, Jesus addresses the crowds about John and about the kingdom. And it's really just an expansion of what he's already been saying to John. In, in a sense, he's defending John to the crowd, but he's also explaining that John's doubts and confusion uh, arise from this limited perspective. Let's look at these verses again. We'll read verses 7 through 15. And again, if you don't understand it all, it's okay. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did he go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did he go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those two images are, are really just a way to, to, to say, you know that John wasn't some fickle person who who craved man's opinion, or you know that John wasn't someone who lived for luxury. I mean, the guy lived in the wilderness eating locusts and honey, right? In and, 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 and uncomfortable animal clothes. You know John wasn't like that. What did he go out to see? A prophet. Yes, he was a prophet, but I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, 
who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Church, there's a lot packed into these verses, but this morning I just want to boil it down to three basic points Jesus is making to the crowds here. First, Jesus defends John's identity as the promised prophet. This is the first point. Jesus is saying John is more than just a prophet. John is the prophet that the prophets prophesied about. John is the Elijah figure that was promised to come before the day of the Lord. He's not just any prophet. He's, he's the greatest of all the prophets. That, that, that's, that's one point he's making about John. Yes, you hear him doubting, but listen, John is the prophet. Don't, don't get confused about who John was. Don't, don't, don't reject John. He, was, he is the one that was sent. He is the Elijah. He is the one the prophets prophesied about. Why is Jesus so intent on this point? Well, because it's the foundation for his second point, which is if John is the prophet, then Jesus is claiming here to be the Christ. Right? If you get John wrong, you get Jesus wrong. And if you get John right, you get Jesus right. If John is the one preparing the way for the Messiah, if John is Elijah, if John bore witness to Jesus, then Jesus is saying to the crowds here, John's right. He's affirming that he is the Messiah who brings in the kingdom of God. And this explains why Jesus says that John is greater than anyone who's ever been born before him. And that's a very audacious statement. When you really read what Jesus said closely, you realize how audacious Jesus was, the claims he made. Right? Like if someone, if someone introduced me to speak somewhere and I came up and said, that person is the greatest person ever born. Why? Because they introduced me. <laughs> you know, that, now that's, that's a little bit of an uh, egomaniac right there, right? But, but no, J Jesus says, John is the greatest ever born. And, and here's who John was. John was the one who said, look at him. He must become greater. I must become less. John, so, so Jesus is, is saying here that he's the Messiah. He's saying that he's the one who brings in the kingdom. And John's greatness was in his role of bearing witness to Jesus. So, so John's Elijah, I'm the Christ. Th th these things are true, but then Jesus' third point is this. The kingdom comes completely unexpectedly. The kingdom comes in a way that John couldn't understand. The kingdom comes through suffering. That's the third point he's making. The kingdom comes through suffering. Notice that immediately after Jesus says John is the greatest ever born, he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus is, is somewhat make, uh, making a timeline here for his hearers. He's, he's, he's talking about the law and the prophets prophesied up, up until John. And John is the greatest of them all. He's the one the prophets prophesied about. But John was the last one. John belongs to the old era 
He's in our New Testament, but in a sense, John is the last of the Old Testament prophets pointing to Jesus. He's the greatest of them all because he's the one that most clearly pointed to the Messiah. And yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven from here on out is greater than John. Why? Because, church, you realize that you can bear so much greater witness to Jesus than John ever could. John could say, there he is. He's the Christ. He's the one. He's the Messiah. But you can say, Jesus is the crucified Christ. Jesus is the Messiah who came and lived a sinless life and then died as a substitute on the cross for our sins and rose again and is coming again. The least in the kingdom of heaven can give greater witness to Jesus than John ever could. Because we live on the other side of things now, don't we? That's what Jesus is saying. And John couldn't understand a Messiah that was going to come and not conquer, but instead be crucified. John couldn't understand a kingdom that would advance without conquering its enemies. Look at verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. This is a hard verse to translate. Different versions say different nuances about about how to take this verse. But here's what I think Jesus is saying. This this phrase that the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, I think that we can translate that to, to, to say the kingdom of heaven has forcefully advanced. From the days of John till now, the kingdom of heaven has forcefully advanced, which, which we see in Jesus' ministry, right? In Jesus' ministry, he's casting out demons. He's, he's making people walk. The, king, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing against the powers of darkness, and yet, at the same time as that forceful advancement, it is suffering violence. John's in prison. Jesus is going to be crucified. The disciples are going to be put to death. The kingdom is going to advance and suffer at the same time. That's something that John would have no category for. See, th- th- this, is, this is new, this is different. Jesus is saying, he is Elijah, I am the Christ, but it's coming in a completely unexpected way. The kingdom advances through suffering. First and foremost, my suffering, which at this point had not been revealed yet, and then continuing through the church's suffering until the end. John is Elijah, Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus is a Christ who would suffer and the kingdom would come through suffering. This is Jesus' answer to the doubts of John and to the questions of the crowd. Now, if we back up a little bit, there's a few applications we need to make here. First, Jesus here is teaching something that the rest of the New Testament continually teaches, that the kingdom has an already and a not yet. It's an already and a not yet. And, and church, if we don't grasp the already and the not yet of our faith, then we're going to be thrown for a loop all the time. The, the, the doubts are going to exponentially increase if we don't realize that there's a sense in which the kingdom has already come, but there's also a sense in which we are waiting for it. We're waiting for it to arrive. And so Jesus is giving theology to a doubter here that will enable them, enable John, enable us today to, to better understand our beliefs and, and, and cope with our experiences. 
But there's, a, there's even a greater principle here, though, isn't there? As we, as we seek to doubt well, if you are doubting, bring your doubts to Jesus. That's the first application. But second, when you are doubting, deepen your understanding of God's word. When you are doubting, deepen your understanding of God's word. If your doubts are rooted in this, in this tension between what you believe and what you experience, it's very likely that what you believe isn't quite what God's word teaches. I'm not saying that's always true, but listen, it was true for John the Baptist, right? I mean, he understood who Jesus was more than anyone in his own day, and, and yet he needed to be sharpened, he needed to be strengthened, he needed a better understanding of God's word than he had. And when we are doubting, we need to deepen our theology. We need to deepen our understanding of God's word. Theology is not for armchair theologians. Theology is not just for podcasts and discussions. No, that, that, that's not theology. I mean, they can talk about it, but that's not what theology is for. Theology is for disciples of Jesus who are following him by faith, even through suffering. We need theology in those moments so that when we doubt, we are equipped to understand better than we did what's going on. If you're doubting belief because, because you thought God was good, but now you're suffering, well, you, you need a deeper theology of both who God is and a, a theology of suffering. Right? You need to deepen your roots in those things. If you're doubting the power of the gospel in your life or in, your, in our church, then you need to deepen your theology of the, the Spirit's work in the world. If you're doubting the, the reality of Jesus because you don't have joy in him, then you need to deepen your theology of the Christian life. Right? We, need to, we need to dive into the word and dive into the church and, and learn and grow when we doubt. Doubting is a time for God to strengthen our grasp of his word. That's what Jesus does for John. He strengthens his grasp of his word and his ways. So when you doubt, bring your doubts to Jesus. Deepen your theology. And finally, well, let's look at the final section of this passage. In verses 16 through 19, we see Jesus' rebuke of the crowds. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So Jesus is speaking to the crowds. He's just called them to understand and accept what he's teaching about John, about himself, and about the kingdom. But Jesus also knows that as a whole, this crowd has already decided not to believe. This crowd has take, taken a decided turn against Jesus and against John. And the reason they're not believing is not because they're earnestly looking for the truth. It's not like this crowd is, is really earnestly seeking the truth and and they just can't quite get there. No, Jesus uses a metaphor uh, from a playground setting, right? From the marketplace. But let's picture a playground. And we all know what Jesus is talking about, right? You tell your kids to go out to play. And some days, they just won't get along, right? Like, you guys know that. Like One kid says, let's play tag. And the other says, no, that's too much running. And the first kid suggests, well, let's play hide and seek then. No, that's boring. 
right? And just can go on and on like that. Why? What's going on there when, when, when children are like that? Well, it's just this attitude, right, that, that I'm not going to get along no matter what you say, right? I don't actually want to play with you. That, that, and Jesus is saying, you're like that to the crowds. Saying, you, you, you have this attitude that has already dismissed the truth before you even give it a hearing. John came fasting and preaching repentance, and you rejected him. I came feasting and preaching forgiveness, and you reject me. Why? Not because you actually care for the truth, because you have a heart attitude that's already inclined to reject the truth. Jesus said, but wisdom is justified by her deeds. He's inviting them to stop being the way they're being and actually look at the truth, to earnestly seek out the truth. Examine what I'm saying and look at the deeds that prove that it's true, but, but they're not like that. He's rebuking this dismissive unbelief, which is so different from doubt. Right? The passage really contrasts John's faithful doubting with the crowd's unfaithful disbelieving. And Jesus is saying, you aren't believing, not because you just don't understand, not because you want to seek the truth. You're, you're not believing because there's something in you that doesn't want to believe. And this is so important to consider when we, when we come to the topic of doubt and, and faith and unbelief. Because this teaches us that doubt is not just an intellectual battle. You don't just overcome doubt by giving someone a lot of good reasons to believe the truth. No, because just like children who don't want to play for no good reason at all, besides that's what they're like sometimes, so sinful human beings have a built-in desire to reject the truth. We have this built-in bent against the truth. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what Romans 1 says. Why? Because if the truth isn't true then we can live the way we want to live. If the truth isn't true, then we can do what we want. We can be kings of our own lives. And here's what's happening sometimes in doubt, in, in, in doubting and deconversions and, and deconstruction, all these things. What's happening at a, at a heart level is, I don't want to believe. I don't want to believe because I'm tired of living for Jesus. I don't want to believe because I'm tired of having to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. I don't want to believe, believe because I want to be king of my life. There's a spiritual battle going on when you doubt. And so this is the final application I want to make about, about wrestling with doubt. It's when you doubt, doubt yourself. When you doubt, doubt yourself. By that I mean that we need to question what is going on in our own hearts that's making us inclined to doubt. We need to recognize that there is a part of us that doesn't want to believe because by not believing in Jesus, it means we get to live for ourselves. We need to recognize that there's a spiritual battle going on underneath our doubts. And when we doubt, by recognizing that battle, we can, we can fight doubt at the level we need to fight it, not just at an intellectual level. No, we can fight doubt at a heart level. If, if underneath our doubts 
is this inclination away from Jesus because we have convinced ourselves that we'd rather live for ourselves. The only way to fight that level is by beholding the goodness and glory of Jesus in the cross. See, it might seem like a paradox. Because when you're doubting, you might say, well, how do I know I can believe the cross? And, and, and you run all these directions to decide, I need reasons, I need, I need evidence, I need something to shore up my doubts, and, and those things have their place. Deepening our understanding, deepening our theology, deepening our grasp, all that has its place. And yet, if there's something deeper going on that doesn't want to believe, because we have this wrong view of who Jesus is, then we need to go back to the cross. We need to hear the gospel again. So that by the Holy Spirit, our, our disinclination to believe is overcome by the Spirit showing us how good and glorious and worthy Jesus is. So now we want to believe. So now we, we desire the truth. It overcomes that childlike attitude to dismiss Jesus out of hand no matter what because we don't really want him. No, the cross compels us toward Jesus. The gospel compels us toward him. And so that's how we need to fight for faith. Yes, bring your doubts to Jesus. Deepen your grasp of God's word. But finally, doubt yourself. Doubt your own motivations for, for why these questions are being asked and, and, and make a beeline for the cross and for the gospel and, and, let, it, and let it be preached to you through the church and your community and, and your own time in the word. Remember the cross. Remember Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith the author and perfecter of our faith. So, so whatever faith that you have, he gave it to you. He's the author of it. He wrote that faith into your heart, and he will sustain it, and he will perfect it. He's the only one who can give us victory in this battle. Church, I want you to know that doubt is part of faith. Not that every one of us is always going to be doubting all the time at the same intensity, but doubt is part of the life of faith. There are times when Christians just pray every day, I believe, help my unbelief. But doubt well by doing that in the presence of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. You can come to Jesus with your doubts, and he will sustain your faith. He will keep you. He will hold you fast. Bring your heart to him. Bring your doubts to him, and let him minister his word to you. Father, thank you for this time in your word this morning. I know we have a lot of questions about this passage still. There's so many, so many things we could, we could continue to think about and learn But Father, we, we do want to thank you that in this passage you reveal to us a compassionate Savior who doesn't cast us away when we doubt, but who strengthens us and who calls us to recognize what's going on in our own hearts 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you will not snuff us out when our faith is dim. We thank you that you don't come and break us when we are damaged. Lord, we pray right now as we ourselves cast our eyes on the cross that you would strengthen our faith in this moment. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has never trusted in your son and his sacrifice for sins, then we would pray that you would author that faith today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.